Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Welcome, guys. How are you guys doing? How's everybody's day? It is almost the 4th of July. Can you believe it? It's I know that gives away the timeline here, but... Yeah, it's probably August by now when we're releasing yeah, this. Yeah, but still, that's if you hear a little independence in my voice... <laughs> oh, in your voice? Not yeah. like fireworks in the Hello, background? La, la, la. Yeah, exactly. Or people start you know, shooting up fireworks at fucking 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. Anyway, we watched Mimic. We did. Guillermo del Toro's second feature film. Wasn't it only his second? Yeah. Holy smokes. What, 1997? Yep. It was the same year that Titanic came out. That's that's all I can oh, remember. Oh, yeah. That's right. It was a big, big year. Well, you know what's interesting? Well, first, why don't we listen to it, the trailer? Yeah. Three years ago, a team of brilliant scientists found a way to stop a deadly disease. Now, the cure they created has taken on a life of its own. So you think your little Frankenstein's got the best? There's some weird shit here. Lots of it. They all died in the lab. But you let them out. Sometimes an insect will evolve to mimic its predator. A fly can look like a spider. A caterpillar can look like a snake. They are breeding. Whatever it becomes, it destroys. Peter, these are lungs. Yesterday, it became human. If you see the size of that thing... Changed its DNA. Okay, so that, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, okay. So we should mention that there's a theatrical release and then there's the director's cut. And right. the director's cut was released in 2011 because Guillermo del Toro had originally disowned this movie yeah. because he didn't have final cut. Right. Well, he also had disowned this movie because he had these like constant clashes with Bob Weinstein, who's the pr- one of the producers. Mm-hmm. The Weinstein bros. Bob Weinstein would frequently visit the set and like make these unreasonable demands about what should be shot, which would deviate away from the script. And then since then, Del Toro, like, he's never worked with him and then disowned the script. This was only originally supposed to be like a 30-minute short. It was supposed to be as part of a, oh. a, like, a sci-fi horror comedy shorts by Miramax. Wow. That's interesting. And then they just expanded it to a feature. It like adds to the thing of being like, so how many people were involved in this? It started with like as being a short concept. And then there's all these like weird religious mentions in the movie, like Judas breed. And there's like quotes from (laughs) the book of Revelation thrown in. So you're kind of like, what were we? (laughs) What was the original concept? It's kind of all over the place, but at the end of it, it's bugs that can become humans. <laughs> yeah. It's like the fly plus the movie The Thing. Yeah. The human bugs seem gross. They do seem really gross. I feel like you would probably be able to tell that there's something fucked up. I would maybe right. be like, it burn victim? Like, what's going on? Right, Just right. to be insensitive about right. it. I will say, in concept, I like the idea of... You know, scientists feeling like they need to step in in order to kill these cockroaches that are causing diseases to sick kids, right? So mm-hmm. they decide to introduce this new Judas bug. Judas, I was about to say Judas Priest. <laughs> Judas Priest bug. <laughs> um, to come in and kind of wipe out the other ones. And so our quote-unquote trying to play God gets the better of us because then right. the science is... Three the years later, they've back, evolved in they the sewers like and they look like us. Yeah. yeah. You we get a young Josh Brolin... 
who's you know i always love him scraping poops off the cave walls and whatever he's <laughs> scraping poops <laughs> that's what the seashells and demolition man should have been called poop scrapers poop yeah <laughs> he doesn't even know what the poop scrapers are used for or how to use them to scrape his poop So in the movie, they say that insects don't have lungs, which I didn't know. And so I wanted to know, how do they breathe? And instead of lungs, insects breathe with a network of tiny tubes called tracheae. Now, we have tracheae, which feed our, into our lungs, mm-hmm. but I guess they just don't actually have, like, the lung parts, and so their cells are exposed directly to the oxygen coming in from the trachea. Ah. Now, so they so, don't breathe, but they absorb oxygen. Yeah, it's okay. kind of like this open tube system, because they have these holes on their stomachs. Uh-huh. It's, like, on their abdomen, and that's where the air flows in. This but, is, like, all insect species? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. And, it, like, since the biggest bugs have the longest tracheae, they should need the most oxygen to be able to breathe. But the distance that the oxygen can travel down the tracheae, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Trachea, tracheae, tracheae. Uh, Right. Depends on the concentration of oxygen in the air. So if atmospheric oxygen was doubled, oxygen should be able to make it twice as far into the trachea, which would then lead to bigger and bigger bugs. Okay, okay. So maybe like why in the that's why in the rainforest the bugs are so much bigger because there's so much more oxygen in the air because of all the trees. I think so. It's also why ancient bugs are so much bigger. Oxygen in the atmosphere before the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs was way higher. Like thirty five percent of the atmosphere was oxygen. Okay, and so that would have enabled giant bugs oh man because the higher oxygen content right. in the atmosphere leads to bigger bugs because of the way they the tracheas get work deeper into their borders yeah wow. <laughs> exactly wild okay yeah it, that led me to some research about the biggest insects ever and we have fossils of these dragonfly like creatures that had a wingspan of 30 inches and a body weight of over a pound which Whoa. basically makes it about as big as a crow that's fucking crazy giant dragonflies dragonfly crows style yeah the, oh, the size of crows that is the stuff of nightmares totally like it's freaky enough to be like Whoa, like if a bug's flying around your face know, let alone imagine if it's it like literally being the size of a giant bird holy shit today we have something called the goliath beetle which can grow to over four ounces and almost five inches long and okay. so that's like you know about as big as I think your hand like maybe a, oh that's as big yeah of course big as your hand because i'm thinking the biggest beetles that i've uh, is like the scarab or whatever i don't even know how big those are but like or the giant like hissing cockroaches and shit yeah they can grow to about the size of your hand and that's like about as big as the biggest bugs on earth today after the lowering of the atmospheric oxygen so but i really okay so i guess that's where i'm tripped up as i didn't even know that those bugs can grow that big yeah yeah where are we talking do you know i mean these are mostly found in africa's tropical forests okay i'm just trying to figure out where to not go man also saying i'm leaving for costa rica on saturday and i acknowledge that <laughs> i need to invest in some some bug spray because that's the only thing i've heard people are like it's amazing just there's a lot of bugs just yeah yeah get, get ready for that yeah i just i i didn't realize that they didn't have lungs they just had tubes yeah i, I did read that some insects can do like a, a like a lurching motion to try to increase the amount of oxygen flowing through their tube interesting there's yeah. definitely a thing where they can like like try and push the, the right i don't know i don't know how to Illustrate that in audio form. What Jeff was doing is basically a shimmy, but, you know, I'm fine with it. All right, so Mira Sorvino and Jeremy Northam are entomologists in Mimic. And so entomology is the study of insects and forensic 
entomology is the study of insects with regards to criminal investigation. So mm. I kind of did a little bit of a dive here, and it's fucking rad, right? Already, like, forensic science in general and just where we've come, DNA itself, right? Mm-hmm. Just how we're able to use these clues is awesome. But, but yeah, understanding the way nature actually leaves clues for you. Right. Uh, yeah, like, it's such a crazy... You follow your nose to the, <laughs> the murder scene. <laughs> You that smell that ori- death? Yeah. That was the original Fruit Loops, uh, you know, and... <laughs> oh, boy. Anywho, <laughs> so... I've completely forgotten about that slogan. You forgot about Toucan? I, I, Toucan I, Sam? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Moving on, one of the first documented cases of forensic entomology took place in 13th century China. So there's this book from 1247 called The Washing Away of Wrongs, in which this pioneering forensic investigator, Sun Tzu, he gave this account of forensic med- medicine during the Song Dynasty. Wait, so, Sun Tzu? Of the art of war? I, is that him? Yeah. Is he a forensic investigator as well? I, it wouldn't shock me if he like had more than just Should some ideas about war. Should we look that up now war. so we're yeah. not fuckfaces? Yeah, let's okay. do that. Wait, it was Sun Tzu who did this. So the art of war and forensic investigation? Wow. The Chinese military general and philosopher Sun Tzu once famously solved a murder in a village by asking all its residents to bring out their sickles and leave them in the sun. Oh, okay, yeah. So that wow. was that guy. Okay. Turns out, so Sun Tzu is not only the The, master of the art of war, but also a forensic investigator and like solved this murder in this village. But in this book, The Washing Away of Wrongs, he describes this case of a murdered farmer in which the suspects were told to lay their sickles on the ground and no blood was visible on the tools, but blow flies swarmed one of the sickles, revealing the identity of the murderer. Uh, So you leave a bunch of murder weapons in the sun and the one that attracts all the bugs. Because many insect species practice necrophagy. I don't know. When G and Y is together, is it gee? Is it G? Necrophagy, necrophagy, tomato, tomato. You get it. Yeah. It's munching on corpses. (laughs) That's what this this is about. So you think of like carrion beetles, skin beetles, there's bone beetles. There's a recent study that even found a caterpillar munching on human skin. Oh boy. But flies are the most avid flesh eaters. So as I said, blow flies, carrion flies, blue bottles, green bottles. Didn't know those were names of flies, but those are names of flies. Blue bottles and green bottles? Green and blue bottles. And cluster flies. Just basically think of the swarms you've seen hovering above a roadkill those guys they have this ability to sniff out death soon after it occurs often within minutes and they're attracted by these volatile molecules called apenumons apenumons (laughs) a-p-e-n-e-u-m-o-n-e-s who knows? Apenumines. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> Good. They're, this, they're molecules that are released by bacterial activity, such as, you know, when bodies start to decompose. These blowflies are often the first insects to appear on the scene. Oftentimes, they'll lay their eggs on rotting flesh so that when their larvae hatch, they have a ready food supply. Oh. They then hatch about 10 days later. So this life cycle is really helpful for forensic entomologists because they can at least estimate how long the insects have been on the body. So, like, if the insects have been mm-hmm. there for about seven days, you can say, oh, most likely they've been dead for at least seven days. Because they still got like three days before they're going to yeah. hatch. Yeah. And so, I mean, it basically just offers these clues. What this is called is the postmortem interval. It's the time since death has occurred. So, I mean, it's just in any way that you're trying to solve the crime. Interesting. You want to find that time of death. And if you don't have many other clues, you can use the, the larva. Well, I was really into CSI when that show first came sure, on the scene. Sure. And I do remember this story being told in like an early episode mm-hmm. in that like being an entomologist and being a forensic pathologist kind of like go hand in hand. Yeah. Because Well, that I mean, that's a really good point because a lot of times, I mean, even in the stuff that I was reading, they've said that even though it, you know, 
CSI makes that stuff look really cool. They mm. kind of try to emphasize is that there's like 50 different parts of forensic science mm -hmm. in quotes, right? Like somebody has a specialty. Mm -hmm. So like maybe the person that, you know, they're there trying to figure out if, you know, what the cause of death was, then they might call their entomologist buddy in the research lab. Uh -huh. You know, it's uh, not see. quite yeah, yeah, as yeah. even like what Miro Sorvino and the, those folks are doing they make it a lot more gritty where they're like on the scene and mm -hmm. like dealing with the beetles but right? really they're probably like calling their professor yeah. friend who's yeah. like in and, an office going professor... like well this is how the bugs work and right yeah. and uh, you got a sample collect the sample send it over here i'll take a kid they're sending it off to a lab yeah. that's that's what a forensic entomologist yeah. sounds like they send it off to a lab <laughs> but you know you because you're thinking about like what would be the circumstances that would lead an insect to be attracted to colonize the body it could be death or it could also be just neglect or ne abuse like forensic entomologists are involved in a lot of like pet abuse they work with the spca oh. because you know if a if an animal is really sick and whatever they have the fucking flies yeah. running around their eyeballs right oh, you know <laughs> so then the investigators they use that to draw this kind of circumstantial info about what happened to the person they could also maybe be able to tell if a body was moved or disturbed based on the insects present because a bug that doesn't belong in the local environment likely is brought from somewhere else maybe mm -hmm. it got stuck to the body even if a body is too decomposed for a forensic toxicologist to determine if drugs or poison are present larval specimens can be analyzed instead because oh. when larvae feed their bodies accumulate and store drugs which can be sampled they also alter insect growth so <laughs> like <laughs> if they're on something that's sort of a downer it'll slow down their development if they're on an upper it'll hype it up so you'll be able to be like what's <laughs> going on here is she doing some ecstasy all day long or you know well that's fascinating it's I fucking wild or even you know like the fact that our bodies break down food a lot quicker than fly blowfly larvae bodies do mm -hmm. so like human flesh will stay in your in a in a larval body longer than like you know steak will stay in our gut interesting there's just like this much greater window of detecting if there was some side of sort of eating of the human body uh -huh. that this larva was doing this is especially helpful in cases where like a body isn't there but the maggots that fed on it are oh so they use this example like say somebody murdered somebody and left her in the basement and then he heard somebody was coming to find her so he picks up the body and dumps her out of the bush and investigators go to the scene and find a lot of maggots the murderer's like oh that's just from some dog food. Well, you could analyze those maggots and get the DNA out and say, no, they're not from dog food. They're, in fact, human, and they're from your wife, Dolores. Dolores. I was like, yeah. Whoa. I was like, whoa, you guys really painted this picture for me. <laughs> you know, she was just playing Parcheesi all day before you murdered her, and now she's coming to maggots. I don't know. Well, as far <laughs> as, like, the human flesh-eating element, I looked into ticks mm -hmm. and why are ticks so hard to kill? Yeah. And ticks will actually hunt humans. Really? Yeah, because right. they are really sensitive to carbon dioxide mm -hmm. and to blood, you yeah. know, so if they smell blood in the air, they come running. And God, doing a lot of this <laughs> research, they, they apparently literally run. Oh boy. A lot of this research was me doing this in front of my computer, just like, huh. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so ticks are mostly dangerous because they can carry disease. If a tick manages to attach itself to your skin, you probably won't notice because they inject you with an anesthetic first. Right, sure. And the then, mosquitoes do that too, right? I think that, so. Th that's yeah. kind of what the causes the itchiness. So you're completely unaware while they use their little mouths to drill into you and insert their hypostomy, which is, which again, hip hippostome? <laughs> I don't know. Which is basically a tiny harpoon straw that they use to suck blood out Ugh. of you. Ugh. Ugh. So they say if a tick bites you, 
you're supposed to kill it in a way that doesn't destroy the body. Right. Because if you destroy the body, if you like squeeze it while it's embedded in you, you basically like squirt its guts into you through its mouth. Oh my God. So which carries most of the infection. So like you don't kill a tick while it's embedded in right. you. Right. Well, see, I hadn't heard that part of it. I'd heard that like if you rip off their body that they can like regrow a new one. So that's I don't why. think they can regrow a new yeah, one, but the, the head can stay embedded uh-huh. in your skin and then that can cause an infection and cause problems. I've heard that you're supposed to like fuck with them and like, right. you yeah. know, like put rubbing alcohol out. I don't know. So okay, This is why I looked this up because I was like, do you burn them? I've heard a million <laughs> things. Okay, so... Kill it in a way that doesn't destroy the body, which is basically the best way to remove them is you take tweezers or forceps and you go as close to your skin as possible and slowly try to pull it out. Just like wedge it out. Yeah, so that like you actually get the, because you don't want the mouth to break off in your skin. Oh man. You want to remove the whole thing. And then they say wrap the tick tightly in tape, like scotch tape, like the tick itself. Yeah. And then it basically dies in there and it can't get free in the tape. It like I guess you're suffocating it. So not just like flick it away and move on. It's right. like it, you want to murder the tick. Well, the reason that you want to murder it and keep it is that it takes like weeks for tick-borne illnesses to begin. Oh. And you might want to like they they say they recommend like attaching it to an index card, writing down the date and where you found this tick. That's kind of like what she was doing in the movie. Right. So it allows you to if you need to, if you end up with like a tick-borne illness a couple weeks later, you've still got the tick. You can like bring it to a doctor right. and theoretically find out like oh, better what you have. That requires a lot of patience because I'll tell you when I was yeah. growing up and these kind of stories were told like don't the ticks will just bore themselves <laughs> into you. <laughs> right. They right. won't die. You right. know, it's like well, that's the thing. They have this crazy hard shell. So, like, crushing them, it's not like they're impervious to crushing. Yeah. Like, they, people say that you can't crush a tick, but, like, but I, it's not made of whole fucking, fucking iron. On there. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's not as easy as just, like, let me swat you away. Right, right. Interesting. You can kill it with rubbing alcohol, which may take a while, but you're just going to keep dumping it on right. it until it I dies. I man. Oh. Some people burn them. Some people cover it in cooking oil. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That seems a little overkill. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they're really hard. Ticks are really hard to kill when they're played by Patrick Warburton. So it's like you really got to worry about it. I'm gonna need you to Remo- edit leave. that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I wanted to add to your point in terms of them being, you know, attracted to blood and that that mm-hmm. sort of thing. When I was reading about this forensic entomology stuff, reading about how insects are attracted to wound sites first. So like eggs are fragile and they dry out easily. And, and so do newly hatched larvae. Fly mothers will often lay their eggs where larvae will be able to get liquid protein right away. Hmm. So if someone, you know, if there's a knife wound or something like that, that seems like a logical place to lay them. But right. in the absence of a wound, flies will lay their eggs in natural orifices. Often the face, because oh, the others are usually covered with clothing. So when you're thinking it. about like your mouth, your eyes, Ugh. your ears probably. I guess if you were <sighs> naked, like your butthole. Like, I mean, orifices, man. Liquid protein. Liquid protein. (laughs) So I was like, gross. But by determining the colonization pattern on the body, forensic entomologists can tell if the insects first colonized a region that is not an orifice. So like like the palms of the hands, for example, they have some of the toughest skin on the body. If if the colonization happened there first, that's likely evidence of defense wounds. But this is where, like, the forensic pathologist is who determines whether a wound is present. But it's the entomologist's job to point out unusual insect activity that can help guide the investigation. 
So it's, I mean, it's all fucking cool, but just to imagine, like, well, around this dead body, we've got all of the orifices are just covered in a swarm of yeah, larvae uh, and flies. Pukey McPukerson. I know, like, adding another level to all the gnarliness that we learned about during yeah. the fly episode. But also, you can use it to solve crimes. <laughs> it so. does make sense. Like, what, are they going to just start in the middle of, like, a random part of the skin? No. Like, we've got these entrances into our bodies. Yeah. Use them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on the tick thing though with the possible exception of widespread ddt use in the soviet union any attempt to limit the population of like disease causing ticks haven't worked mm. and that reminded me about this whole thing involving new york city's bed bug infestation mm -hmm. because oh, God. bed bugs were effectively eradicated from new york city in the 60s but then ddt the incredibly right. poisonous yeah. pesticide was banned, and it took a few decades, but over the last 10 to 15 years, bed bugs have taken back over in New York. I know. And we can't use DDT anymore to get rid of them. And there are treatments that you can do in your home which do work, but it's like the level of pain in the ass that getting bed bugs is. Dude, I fucking... Okay, I lived in New York City for years, and mm -hmm. I never had a problem, even though all of the horror stories, like so many friends of mine whose lives were destroyed, whatever. Right. The first place I moved since moving to LA, this was in 2012, I like just happened to be in a three-bedroom house. Mm -hmm. Two other roommates completely unharmed. Only my room was in Infested. Oh, and we're man. talking because it was there was carpet at the time and it had been empty for a while. So they uh -huh. basically just had time to fuck until there was so many of them uh, crawling. Like you could see them during the day. Oh. Yeah. Like, like my boyfriend and I at the time, like we woke up and we were on an air mattress too. So we made it easy. It was like the worst. And oh. like all of the terror of seeing like the welts on your body yeah. and the, the psychological warfare that it, oh in, that it instills on you. And then How our landlords, they, they kept bringing in fucking termite extermination. So they bring it because they're like, yep, it's all treated. And I was like, I don't think it's treated, man. This requires a lot. It, there's a whole fucking procedure. Yeah. I mean, it was a complete nightmare. It was literally a month of me being eaten by these man. bed bugs. And, you know, obviously I was like, yeah, Did I'm not you eventually have rent. to do this thing where you like separate all of your, cl like yeah. anything clothed and anything you like clothed, bleach it? Did they, you have to throw it out or did you like I bleach it? I didn't throw it out. I didn't throw it out. Basically, the guys came by and like I separated all my clothes and all mm -hmm. the shit into bags and they just like, sprayed the fuck out of so like harsh intense chemicals on all of your stuff right. that you're gonna have to keep washing and everything. although not as harsh as it used to be right because right they're still coming back well, i know it's a give spots on the apples <laughs> believe me the birds and the bees you're like no like don't leave me the bed bugs because they are monsters and and that's the thing though too is like the the paranoia that it leaves in your head forever right. it's like anytime i go anywhere i stay at any hotel if i like happen to have one itch right. i'm like oh god oh god they're right. on me the pugs you know and then and then it's the, it's because it's so easy to bring them back to your home mm -hmm. and because they're not like generally eradicated you can go lie, lie on the wrong couch yeah. or the wrong because they can lie dormant they, can, they lie dormant for yeah. like weeks yeah. on your clothes and oh. then they get like really hungry and for you at night I, yeah, it, they're I, they're monster bugs. But yeah, it's why like there used to be a time where people would like put a couch out on the streets of New York oh, yeah, and like people, people like, would cool. just go, oh, cool, free couch. Yeah. And it's like never well, do well, we're that. We're talking like now. movie theaters having to shut down because they're infested. Yeah. Like that's what you at a certain point you reach the kind of like point of no return. Right. Luckily, you know, I was able to deal with mine and didn't have any other issues. But since then, it's just like you never want to fucking take that risk. A lot of the time, the standard treatments that they <laughs> do now just don't work. Right. They have to come back and keep Are checking they like it super because bugs? because yeah, they we keep turning them into super and super or er, er, bugs. Super. -er. But 
we can't use things like DDT yeah. that actually will get rid of them. So we're in this weird situation where it's like we keep using a pretty ineffective way of mm-hmm. getting rid of them. And then. Them, but them you're not back. necessarily suggesting that we would bring back DDT. No, no. I'm just saying like we're in a tough can, situation. Yeah, we need to like figure out something else. But in the meantime, mm-hmm. you know, that's why it's they're taking so many precautions. That's why they right. say like if you find a bed bug, you have to throw out all your stuff. I really don't want to throw out all my belongings. Right, exactly. Because I, like, some fucking bugs decided that was a nice that dress hungry. I got and, you know, I was going to wear it again one day. But also what monsters decided that this was like the sweet, cozy thing you're going to tell your kids every night before you put them to bed? Like, don't let the bed yeah, bugs like, bite. That's a tight. good fucking don't point. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Oh, man. Like, kill yourself. I guess it's like, maybe that's them trying to reduce the crazy feeling yeah. of it. Because if it's like, eh, you know, I mean, just don't let them bite. It's yeah. no big deal. You don't have to freak out what about bed it. bugs? I didn't even know. What, what are you talking about? Like, How do I, know, I not like, let them? I mean... <laughs> In, like, the Korean War, for example, I've watched enough MASH to know more about the Korean War than most other wars. But, you know, that, that, like, they were constantly dealing with bedbugs on the front lines and stuff like that. And so I imagine if it was more just, like, a fact of life that the don't let the bedbugs bite is just kind of like a don't worry too much about your bedbugs. Yeah. Because you, <laughs> there's it's nothing, gonna it's going to happen and there's nothing yeah, you can do true. about like it. from a time where it's just like everybody right. was just covered in bites all the time. And you're just trying to be like, you know, don't you know, let them bite. It's yeah, not, but, but if they do, whatever. <laughs> get home safe. You know, all those general, you just say yeah, it to yeah. say it. There's nothing that's right. going to actually make it happen. Even while I was going through that shit with the bedbugs, I, I kind of had hoped that it was like, can I just kill the queen and have the whole comedy? <laughs> oh be gone? man. Which they do in this movie. They talk, that's what the whole plan is is like you kill the queen yeah. you kill the colony and i think in the movie it's a king but king, who cares right, because you know he's got he looks like he's wearing a big trench coat and that's his <laughs> little like beetle flaps <laughs> Talk about trench you know. coat mafia yeah <laughs> am i right anyway well so i was looking into this whole idea of killing the queen and so in the majority not killing the queen in like pe- <laughs> yeah. in people i mean like in the, in the I've lives been looking of looking into this idea of assassination yeah you know like a political overthrow <laughs> i've been looking into that but in the majority of species, of insect species, the queen is the only one that can lay female eggs and propagate the colonies. So ants and bees, for example, these are the two that I actually dove into. Mm-hmm. They're called haplodiploid. Wow. That means that sex is determined by whether the egg is fertilized or not. So males emerge from unfertilized eggs, females from fertilized eggs. An ant colony consists of 95% females, and the males only exist for a short period of time to mate with the queen. So usually only the queen has access to sperm from the males to lay fertilized eggs that will end up being female. Okay. Some species of, of bugs... Uh, um, I'm sorry, the correct term is insects. I'm sorry, let me say it again. <laughs> Some species of insects are queenless, and others may have special casts that also assist with reproductions, and they're called gamergates or intermorphs, which I felt gamer like... Gamergates? Yeah. I was like, I needed to mention this because I was like, the original gamergate, huh? Wow. <laughs> They're basically pre-mated workers that can lay eggs and fertilize them, whereas regular workers can lay eggs in some circumstances, but they have no sperm to fertilize Just the like eggs. the Gamer Gators. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they can dry hump, but... Uh, <laughs> anyway, so it's, it's really interesting because it's like when a colony has to move to a new nest, the queen will often disperse either alone or with an entourage of guards or workers and single-handedly start a new colony elsewhere since she's the only one who can lay female eggs. So it's like mm. she really is the queen bee, you know? Yeah, yeah. For example, yeah. No, she's not the queen bee. She's the queen bee double E, and let's just leave it at that. Yeah. But how does a bee colony replace its queen? Let's look at the the example of a queen bee just 
being killed, right? The worker bees notice the absence of a chemical she produces, a pheromone. So pheromones are chemicals that serve as a stimulus to other individuals of the same species for one or more behavioral responses. In the case of bees, in response to the absence of the queen's scent, the workers begin a process of emergency queen rearing. Whoa. This consists of they start to build these queen-sized rearing chambers for about 10 to 20 young female larvae. So this is similar to if, like, the the queen bee is starting to age, she starts to produce less pheromones, Uh leading to the same result of them, like, being like, emergency queen rearing. We got a queen. Yeah. We got a Yeah. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. What's the deal with royal jelly? Did you look into that much? I sure did. Oh, yes. You you totally blew my load. Oh, no. (laughs) I blew your jelly load? Yeah. I assume that the royal jelly, like, is somebody blowing their load. Is that wrong? No. (laughs) I mean, I guess. I mean, whatever that is. Because basically, like, the queen, will, if she's still alive, she'll lay her eggs into these, like, crazy cells that these fucking worker bees build. So uh-huh. they, they're inside these larger vertical-oriented cells, and that tells the workers that they need to feed the potential queens a special food called royal jelly. I don't think that that's ejaculate. I don't think it's okay, bee ejaculate. Right, but they so are go, some. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> but... <laughs> But there is a load that gets blown yeah. whether or not it's There's a, a load sperms. that gets moved yeah. from one place to the next. But it basically <laughs> creates this really fertile queen rather than a sterile worker. So all of the developing queens, they have these fully developed ovaries needed to lay eggs. I, I have a fucking picture here if you want to take oh, a look. Oh, yeah. Away. We can put this in the show notes. Ugh. There's the larva oh, that's yeah. surrounded by this like special royal jelly. Yeah, and you can totally see the little larvae just like bathing in it. Yeah. In a little chamber. A little bathing chamber of royal jelly. So as I was saying, there's like 10 or 20 of these female larvae that they surround with this royal jelly to try to get a queen because it's a fucking emergency, right? Mm -hmm. So the first potential queen bee to emerge from her cell as an adult will sting the other developing queens to death in their cells before they hatch. Oh, shit. If two should emerge at the same time, then the rival queens will have a battle to the death. Highlander. Yeah. There can only be one queen. I mean, it's just crazy when we want, you know, we like... Game of Thrones, anything you want, right. you're just like, ah, oh, humans are just so beastly. It and is what a have game we done? of Thrones. And it's like, it's a fucking game of larva thrones. Yeah. It's a game of bee thrones. What are they? Is it a honeycomb thrones? <laughs> Honey it's a thrones? game of honeycombs. <laughs> <laughs> Me want honeycomb. Furthermore. That's the second cereal slogan that we've had in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so many lines drawn. Okay. Well, so that's bees, but... Ants are also pretty badass. They're so well-established and they seem organized and sophisticated or whatever. And in some ant colonies, there's these, like, calls of death to the queen that are answered by armies of workers. It's it, Apparently, it's kind of routine for that to happen. Mutiny? Yeah. It's, like, it's bizarro. Wow. But sometimes queen ants are forced to take care of themselves rather than look out for the good of their colonies. And sometimes they'll do whatever it takes to be the last one standing, even if it means producing fewer young workers to the detriment of the collective. Because, you know, ant colonies are basically like a super organism. Mm-hmm. And if she stops producing worker ants, eventually the colony is going to like slow down and die out. But it's basically because she's like, I don't want to produce any more of these fucking, you know, Jack these traitors. These traitors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to create my own demise. Yeah, exactly. But what's also fucking crazy is apparently in, in some of these studies, these worker ants could sniff out a selfish queen. The queens that were most fertile, they had the stronger chemical cues, the stronger those pheromones that I'd mentioned before, which made Uh them more likely to be spared execution by workers. But if the workers are like, hey, she doesn't seem to be producing many of those pheromones. What a lazy bones. (laughs) 
going to have to throw her out. She ain't popping out enough kids. <laughs> I know. What a life, huh? Just these instincts to keep producing, but sometimes self-interest takes over. Right. But then it's very much like... Very human. Humans, too. Very human. <laughs> a bug's life. It's more like a documentary. <laughs> So, I have some cockroach facts. Ugh. So, first of all, the question, can a cockroach survive a nuclear blast? You know, you hear about that kind of thing where it's like, cockroaches are going to survive yeah. us all. those and Twinkies. So, it is true that a cockroach can withstand ten times more radiation than a human, but they would not survive getting exploded by a nuclear bomb. I wouldn't imagine so. You know, it is theoretically possible that ones that survived may survive fallout yeah, better like than humans. Yeah, they're Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cockroaches are estimated to be at least 200 million years old. So they're one of the oldest species known. And there are roach fossils that date back 350 million years. So they actually predate a lot of dinosaurs. Wow. So they did survive that impact. It doesn't surprise me that much, though. I mean, they right. really look fucking they prehistoric. They look prehistoric, totally. <laughs> they can move at about three miles per hour, yeah. which for something that size is like crazy fast. And they can survive anywhere and exist pretty much everywhere except Antarctica. That's like the only place in the world that we don't know okay. that they exist. They can withstand extreme heat, but not necessarily extreme cold. Or is it that there's nothing to feed on? There's nothing to feed on. Yeah, that would make sense. They can live without their heads for okay. up to a week. And this is because of what I was mentioning earlier, where they breathe through holes in their bodies instead of through their mouth. So they actually, their bodies can stay alive and continue to breathe without the head. But because it doesn't have any way to drink water, it'll eventually die of dehydration. Okay. So cockroaches can live like years long. It's kind of crazy how long their lifespan is. Like sometimes some of them have lived up to 10 years. Wow. It will only live about a week without a head because it can't because it drink can't anything. Drink. But that's it? You know, that's yeah. crazy. That They're resilient little machines. They fucking are. That's for damn sure. Are they one of those that there's are they important at all? No. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> that was something where I looked into that too and they, it was like, you know, are all roaches bad roaches and it was like, no, some of them are not bad but most of them are, especially yeah. the ones that we know of like the, the German cockroach, the American right. cockroach. Right. No, in terms of just like kind of spreading disease, is that the biggest damage like, to us? Yeah, do they, they don't do. really bite us, do they? <clears throat> they don't Some really bite us, but they do create more allergies. Well, they also live among filth, right? Right. So that's kind of the big. So it's Even kind of an indication. Stickler's disease in the movie. It's like it sounded like it was respiratory issues mm -hmm. that they mm -hmm. that they'd spread or whatever. Yeah, it's definitely that kind of a thing where it's like allergies can be made much worse for somebody who has allergies by living among a bunch of cockroaches. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Don't, do, I think they do they feed they feed on shit or do they feed they on feed on anything, anything. corpses right literally anything oh anything that they can find whether it's sugar blood mm -hmm. feces trash well, that, that was another interesting thing They'll when I was anything. when I was reading about the bugs that participate in ne necrography or whatever I said uh -huh. before yeah, <laughs> where they yeah, eat, yeah, yeah. eat corpses and it's like there's research that suggests that evolution played a part in that because they the bugs that used to feed on poo for lack of a better word <laughs> yeah it's like climate change also like made those those animals that created that poo to not be there anymore so then they would be like well the next best thing is just any corpse like you know basically just try to get that liquid protein anyway yeah anyway you can, any way you can get it or corpse <laughs> any orifice that shine. you can find <laughs> 
the majority of Mimic takes place in the New York City underground. And just while I was watching it, it made me start thinking back on the mole people. Do you remember hearing about the mole yeah, people? Yeah, the, these are people who live like in the abandoned subway yeah. areas. Well, you know, and I'm not from New York, but I went to school there. So when I first got mm. there, I remember like one of my first subway rides, a college friend of mine was like, yes, the mole people and introduced that to me. <laughs> but so actually looking into it, because it seemed very like fol- folkloric to me. I didn't know yeah. how much truth there was to it, but it turns out there is a lot of truth to it. So it wasn't until the New York Times article in 1990 was released that the world was even first introduced to the secret society. Wow. And, you know, and reading the article, it was actually, it, there was a lot more humanity to it. But I know that it, it makes sense that they sort of became infamous, This old, these almost like inhuman creatures. Like their skin was told to be almost invisible from lack of direct sunlight. Their eyes had adapted to the cloak of darkness, eating rats and human flesh. They were called the wow. lost ones, the hidden ones, the broken, the ill, the deranged. There's like fantasy stories that use yeah. this idea about like a species that got locked underground Absolutely. and then had to like live for a million years and now that's why they're yeah. those, and, like and, weird elves. And the reality is far less mysterious. It's, it's, <clears throat> right. it's homeless people. It's yeah. homeless people people that Who don't are have trying sunlight. to find yeah yeah or and, and also a lot of them even in this article from 1990 talked about how they did they had whether it was jobs or like collecting bottles or whatever mm-hmm. it was they would go up above during the day and come down at night you mm. know it, and basically sleep there because they didn't want to be fucked with on the streets the police were starting to crack down all of these right. sorts of things and of course it's terrifying at first but but once you kind of adapt to it and right. you know they did develop their own kind of quasi societies i think at, at most there was maybe a hundred people down there it wasn't like okay. these sprawling societies okay. of people but what was cool is in the in the 1990 article they talk about how there is some historic precedence for it so the mud flats along the hudson river were home to squatters when the railroad was introduced in the mid-1800s and there was a full-fledged shanty town until robert moses who was like the city parks commissioner he decided to put a park and a highway up on the west side in the 1930s so he covered the new york city central railroad tracks much to the relief of Riverside Drive residents who had endured smoky, noisy, and smelly trains carrying cattle and pigs to downtown slaughterhouses. But so he built the park's promenades on top of the the tunnel from 123rd Street down to 72nd Street, where the tracks emerge into the former railroad yard now owned by Donald J. Trump. What? From 1990. That was one of those details that I was just like, uh, <laughs> He owns the mole people? Yeah, yeah. He like oh, no. owned, at least at that time, well, he probably still does now, but like owned the tracks. I was like, you are gross. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, the, the reason why I introduced that is because it's like, just how things change and the fact that these mole people were there for a, a, quite a while, 20 years, until Amtrak started to, they, in 1991, introduced a whole new track. So basically they had to come in there and evict all those folks because not only would they be in the way, but there was danger of them being struck by the trains and that kind of thing. Uh, but it's basically what has continued to happen. You tell the homeless folks to get out of there. There's also like Section 8 housing. Right. But like we both watched this Dark Days documentary, right? Yeah. So yeah, there's this documentary that's available for free on YouTube Mm -hmm. I recommend everybody go check it out it's called Dark Days and it's like a black and white but like incredibly well made documentary where it shows these people's lives Mm -hmm. and you can like they're very human Mm -hmm. like they're portrayed as people who have very tragic lives who have wound up down here for various reasons and have like created in a society where they worry about themselves. They have like little huts underneath there and they have these little like traps to make sure that they're, they create their own safety systems is basically what I'm saying. Well, the documentary was re- released in 2000, but it was documenting these folks d- through the time of okay. when Amtrak came in. So the way that the, sh- the movie ends is 
they're all dealing with this reality of being scooted out. And, right. and many of them did end up in Section 8 housing, that sort of thing. So I don't want to put too much of a light as though it's like, they're just happy down there. It's like nobody really wanted to be homeless. No. You know, and for some people, as they, they talk about in the documentary, it was like, adjusting to life up there where people are messing with you it makes you mm-hmm. a little bit crazy you know at least at least down down here you can express yourself in a way that maybe you couldn't otherwise right. well the plus side seemed like what was interesting about like the old west the plus sides of it yeah meaning that like you built your own home mm-hmm. you made sure that you were feeding your yourself and your mm-hmm. family and like Other than that, you fought for your little spot. There weren't any cops to run to. There weren't any cops to fuck with you. It's a whole, like, going back to the basics of society. Yeah, but also feeling like you had to go back to basics. There was this sense that they were kind of lost or that they were kind of left behind in normal society and feeling like even on the street you couldn't go and complain to Mm -hmm. a a police officer because they don't really fucking care about you. So there was a tragedy to it. Like, there was like that's what I liked about the documentaries. Like, there was this hopefulness in the sense that, you know, they are working together and it's... it's a fascinating portrayal but it's also ultimately it's poverty it's it's drug abuse it's the things that lead people to homelessness in the beginning you know they were saying like more than 80 percent of the people down there have crack addictions yeah and but that that doesn't mean that all of them do right yeah well and then to think like so amtrak comes in okay they like move these people out some folks have section 8 housing it's like the the displacing of those people is like Mm. just i think that's what's kind of hard to think about though too is that now there's still remnants of, of what used to be there. Like it, I was reading this other article about people that went back in like 2015 mm-hmm. and what remains is, you know, it's kind of a, the sh- a shell of its former self. It's like, so nobody's living there. No, I mean, there's evidence of squatters there. Like okay. the, the smell of feces, mm-hmm. there's like syringes scattered, there's rotting mattresses and stuff, but definitely not nearly what it was. What What's mostly left is this like incredible underground gallery of graffiti art that spans for miles. You know, it kind of, it, it actually gets its name, the free, Freedom Tunnel from a graffiti artist, Chris Freedom Pape, who he used the walls at the time to create large scale recreations like Goya's Third of May and Michelangelo's David. And he said he was going down there in like 1974 with his his brother right around the time that the mole people first started, because that's really what it was like 1974 when the first guy like moved down there. So he was kind of like he would go down there to do his graffiti and then he would engage with these homeless folks and they became more comfortable with him. And he kind of understood the, the mentality. It was illuminating, which is odd because it they were dark very days. dark days. <laughs> <laughs> so should I talk about some examples of biomimicry? Sure. So I, I might have mentioned this before that there are designs of solar farms that are based on the structure of sunflowers, which can more efficiently capture energy from the sun. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these things in nature that give us ideas of how we can use technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was mentioned last week, sharklet, the surface th- of shark skins that makes it so bacteria can't grow. Right, right. Stuff like that. So that's what you mean by biomimicry, because right. we didn't really look that much into, you know, animals mimicking up other animals, which right. they do bring up in the movie. But like, this is even cooler to think about. Like, yeah, this is us taking designs right? from, yeah. yeah, it's basically like there are all these examples of us seeing something in nature, realizing that millions of years of evolution had an idea, yeah. and then we take that and use it in technology. Right. Basically doing what the Judas bugs do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a couple examples. There's this new ultrasonic cane, mm-hmm. which uses echolocation like a bat and measures its surroundings and sends vibrations to the handle to help blind people know where things are in their immediate oh, surroundings. Wow. And so early tests have shown that people adapt to it incredibly quickly and they begin building a new type of spatial awareness based on vibrations coming in through their hands. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So what it's is that? I guess is that it's like sonar. Co- is that echolocation? Is it's both. Okay. It, yeah, that's both okay. are echolocation and sonar are kind of like the same idea okay. of, of a technology, and yeah, I guess it's basically like from their perspective, it's like you're colder, colder, hot, hot, hot. Yeah. You know, like one of those things. <laughs> Just but a vibrations. big lifetime game of hot and cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you have like a little cane that can do that for you instead of somebody shouting it out, that's right. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. Another example is okay. So there's a parasite called. Pomphorhynchus laevis. It uses spikes in its head to rip a hole in an animal's intestines, after which it shoves its head inside and inflates its body to hold itself in place. That's disgusting. Horrifying, right? Now, until now, skin grafts, you know, where you take like a piece of skin from one part of the body and graft it onto another part, they're usually held in place with staples, which carry a high degree of risk of infection. A new biomimetic skin graft is based on that terrifying parasite, where the graft has a cluster of micro needles which swell when they're exposed to water. And the needles go into the skin fairly easily, and then once inside, they puff out like a balloon to hold the graft in place. And another advantage over staples, which actually end up tearing the tissue around them, is that the micro needles push the tissue aside rather than damaging it. Oh my God. So, That's way awesome. better skin grafts. Absolutely. Giving us the idea off of this horrifying parasite wow that's really fucking smart i I don't even know what to say about that exactly well because i'm thinking about just just stapling in general and i guess i assumed that they had come up with some way to minimize the tissue damage around it there's a lot of other examples of this kind of stuff i'm sure i'll i'm gonna leave a few of them for future possibilities yeah yeah but like those were a couple that i just thought were so cool that ultrasonic cane and this parasite skin graft concept well it's just one more way to say like we, we might be the top of the food chain or whatever, but we can definitely learn from other species. Yeah, Why can. not, you know? That's what's so cool about our brain. <laughs> we look at other people and are like, let's yeah. use that idea. I'm going to mimic you, and I'm yeah. going to write a movie called you're, Mimic, you're about you that. mimicking us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple of pretty good favorite lines here that mm. were getting a little bit existential. There's one. Evolution has a way of keeping things alive. And I think that's correct. Yeah. Life always finds a way. Life that, finds a way. Thing. I like that line. You know. And then the world's a much bigger lab. And that's that true. That is true. Because that's we often come back to that topic where it's like, yeah, you know, we to have the tools at our behest, mm-hmm. that's all fine and good. But there's so many controls and variables that we don't mm-hmm. necessarily think about. Like all of this in the movie, Judas Bug came back in three fucking years. Can you yeah. imagine like millions of years of evolution? Yeah. Well, I guess isn't what defines a lab that you can control the environment? Right. So unfortunately, this is just wrong because you can't control anything in the real right. environment. It's just it sounds like it's meaningful. Right. Because you can't be like the world's a much bigger lab. Although it's not really a lab. It's not it's really not, a lab. You can't really, you know, like... It's more like just a, pl- a world. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really sterilize the world. Exactly. Right. Anyway, did you have any? No. That's okay, dude. This movie was very silly. Oh, well, wait, no. At one point, they're like, it's the Donna Summer of cricket dumb. Oh, yeah. Because they were talking about, like, it's like some musical element that the crickets are doing. Oh, that's right. To communicate or something. Right, exactly. But, you know, Donna Summer was a really topical reference for yeah, them in 1997. Yeah. Not though. Well, that's why it was weird. It was like, be like, who was Celine Dion? Oh, yeah, I mean, you said it was the same year as yeah. Titanic. Heart will go on. Yeah, it's bitch. the Celine Dion of cricketdom. We had fun. This was a. I mean, the movie itself was kind of garbage, but I think I definitely got a lot of 
fun little jump yeah offs. i mean just like the movie the fly i feel gross but <laughs> yeah <laughs> this super was gross. definitely super interesting <laughs> you can find us at oh that's a thing.com and oh that's a thing on facebook and twitter you can find me at it's a joy Amia on twitter and insta i'm at jeffrey ekman on twitter please rate and review us on itunes yeah please do let us know and also subscribe tell your friends there's a movie you want us to cover that we haven't yeah. let us know let us know if there's any movies you guys want to see do you have any more weird bug facts that you want to share with us please do or if you can you know help illuminate even further some of these facts that, we do. that would be awesome we don't know what we're doing next week but it's gonna be good <laughs> all right guys we love you have a great day and week bye <laughs>